0: greatest theologians of the modern era. His books on theology, his books on theology have had more impact than probably just about any theologian since Augustine. Put simply, he's, he's wicked smart. Um, and he literally wrote thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pages of theology. In some of the most difficult times in history, he began writing not too long before um, World War II, in the early 20s, at the end of World War I, up to World War II. And towards the end of his life, at the prime of his popularity, he was visiting the United States, so this is the mid-1960s. He's visiting the United States, and he's at the University of Chicago, and and, uh, reporters had a chance to ask him a few questions. And so here they had a chance to ask one of the greatest living theologians ever, what, if he could summarize everything he had ever written in his life, what would be the summation of his theology? And they were at this, you know, the University of Chicago Divinity School. They were expecting something incredibly deep and eloquent. And Karl Barth, one of the greatest theologians who spent his entire life studying Scripture, just a couple years before he died, replied replied this, that the essence of the millions of words he had published could be summarized this way, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's such a simple yet profound message. The core of who Jesus is, the core of who God is, is love. But the problem is, as the song asks us, what is love? Love, it's confusing. It's elusive. It's hard to say what love looks like or how love should feel. If we sat down and had coffee and I were to ask you for your definition of love or your experience of love, the chances are that each of us would have a slightly different take, a different interpretation. Some of you may have incredible experiences with love and you would gush and smile and get all giddy as you talked about your experience with love. But my guess is, as many, if not more, of us will have, we've had rather disappointing experiences with love. And all of us have these different definitions and experiences, but the one thing that we've all experienced in some way or another, whether the relationships have been good or bad, is that love feels conditional. Our definition of love often leaves us wanting more. We often, whether we are willing to be truthful with ourselves, believe that we are loved because of what we provide, of what we offer, of how we can reciprocate. For many of us, we can relate more to an experience of separation than we can connectedness, more to a sense of being unwanted and unloved and inadequate than we can be to feeling as if we're adored and treasured. Now, it could be your family of origin or it could be a relationship or a marriage that unraveled. But for most of us, we have a sense, we understand what it looks like and feels like to be disconnected and unloved. The basic message of both the Christian and Jewish traditions, the basic message in Genesis is this, is that in the beginning, brokenness enters the world. Separation becomes the new norm. The story goes that in the beginning, we had a connectedness. We had unity. There was this incredible love, a connection between humans and the divine, between humans and their creator. And then brokenness came in and ushered in a new starting point. Instead of being born into a world of connectedness and love and unity and beauty, we are born into a world that looks much like the world we live in today. When we were thinking about having a child, one of the questions that we were asked by some people as we talked about having a child is, do you really want to bring a child into this world? Separation from God and separation from each other, separation even from ourselves seems to be the norm. There is a sense that many of us feel, even if we can't put our finger on it, that something's broken, something's fractured, something is not as it should be. And instead of it being the norm to feel loved and accepted, we actually become suspicious and resistant of love. Right In those moments where we begin to feel that maybe this is the real thing, this is unconditional love, we immediately begin to pull back and think, oh, whoa, whoa, what do you want from me? Something must be wrong. For some of us, it's actually more comfortable to feel unloved than to feel loved. Think about it. And those moments when things aren't going right, whether in your job or in a relationship or in your family of origin, it's easy to slip into thinking that no one wants me or there's nothing special about me. And along with that separation and that feeling of un- being unloved comes pain and loneliness. And into that reality, we hear the good news of the gospel. The story goes like this, that Jesus steps into the pain and the loneliness by choice. That, that Jesus steps into that experience and that Jesus is love. Jesus puts love on display. Now, what I want to do this morning is I do not want to convince you of the truthfulness of the story. Some of you may say that it's made up or I don't know if I can go with you there. All I want you to do this morning is I want you to let down your guards just for a moment. We can have a conversation later about the truthfulness what I want you to do is just to hear the gospel story. The gospel that tells us that Jesus steps into our pain and our separation and our experience of brokenness and is present in the midst of it, in the midst of the separation. And the story goes that Jesus steps into the midst of our pain and our brokenness and our separation even when we had nothing to offer in return. Romans 5.8 says it this way, But God demonstrated his own love for us. That while we were still sinners or while we were still separated, Christ died for us. The message, the Bible by Eugene Peterson, says it this way, which is actually where the lyrics to the song we sang this morning come from. But God put his love on the line while we were of no use to him whatsoever. Now, for some of us, we need to let this sink in this morning because we think that God loves us whether, you're on, whether you like acknowledge this or like this is at the forefront of your mind many of us think that God loves us or Jesus loves us because of what we do because you pray a lot or you give to your church now I will love you for that but right like but we begin to think that God loves us because of all these things that we do the boxes that we check off and because this is how life works, this is how humans work, if we just try a little more, if we do a little more, if we strive a little more, if we go to church a little more often, if we serve a little more, we give a little more, then God's love will grow for us. But the truth of the matter is, if the Bible is true, is that divine love actually loves unlovely things. And in fact, seems to seek out things that are broken. It actually seeks out people who are broken. And as hard for for it is for us to understand and accept, Jesus steps into the separation and says, I want all of you, including your brokenness. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus is the Restorer. He seeks out broken things. We have this idea In fact, I've talked to people who said things like this, like, I've come to church a couple times, but I feel that I am so broken. If you only knew my story, I know all the other people around me are so put together, but if you only knew my story, like, I am more broken than anyone else. And so we have this idea that we have to polish ourselves up. We have to get things together before we come to Jesus. And that's not how Jesus is. Instead, Jesus meets us in our brokenness, in our shame, and the things that you are most embarrassed about, the things that bring you the most humiliation, is where Jesus meets us. He meets us in our darkest place. And God's love is not distant, but it's up close and personal. And here's the thing. God's love is vulnerable. We often like to use these words about God that God is, un, you know, that God is, um, you know, we talk about, uh, I'm totally blanking on the words here, but, you know, we have these, uh, the, you know, omniscient and omnipresent, right? God is all powerful. And we, we sometimes think about God as being static in emotion, right? God doesn't feel. But if we take the Hebrew scriptures in particularly seriously, and I think if we take the entire Bible seriously, we have a God who feels with his people, a God who is vulnerable, a God who is willing to say, I love you first and risk rejection. If any of you have ever been the first person in a relationship to say, I love you, you know the pain of that moment. My wife isn't here, so I can tell you the story. When we first, um, when the first moment I told her that I loved her, we were young, we were in college, and her response was, but I'm so young. <laughs> OK. I said, I loved you. She replied, but I'm so young, and I replied, I'm not proposing. She's like, oh, um, we were from Oklahoma, and people in Oklahoma, right? Like, you just got married at our age, and so she's like, I'm not ready to get married, but I'll tell you, my heart was beating out of my chest. There is this fear of saying love first. There's a fear of being open and vulnerable to the other person in a space that allows that person to reject you, This is why I have problems with theologies that say, "Oh, it's okay. God will sweep everyone up in His love," because the problem is love requires the other requires a vulnerability for the other person to be able to reject. But deep down, it's hard. But deep down, it's hard to believe that anyone could ever love us like this, because what do we have to offer in return? In fact, like I said, there's there's a part of us that feels suspicious. We would rather the parameters up front No, what do you really want from me? Just tell me, what do you want? You want my wife's devotion, you want me to go to church? Jesus, what do I need to do in order to be loved by you? That makes sense. A love that wants nothing in return, a love that is vulnerable, a love that will reach out first makes no sense and makes us nervous. And so this morning, I want to dig down into a story from the Gospel of John where we see this put on display and where I think we capture a glimpse of the character of Christ that actually shatters many of our images, both of Jesus and ultimately they shatter our images of who we believe that God was. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 8, the Gospel of John chapter 8. There are four Gospels. The Gospels tell the story of Jesus' life. They go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as synoptic Gospels. They have a lot of similarities. They seem to know that that one another exists. They seem to pull on one another. But then there's this Gospel of John. John is not contradictory in any way but John has this whole other thing that he's trying to tell us and at the heart of John and what becomes later on we get 1st John and 2nd John which is put together most likely by the Johanian community so John and John's followers and John's disciples the heart of what John keeps coming back to over and over again is that, that we are loved deeply by God and that that love then we, we give back that love by the way that we love others We read in John chapter 8, beginning with verse 1, "...but Jesus went down to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law..." So here we have Jesus is doing a Bible study. Everything's going well. "...and at that moment the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group." Now, despite the fact that the Jewish law says that if someone's caught in adultery, the male and the female have to be brought, they only brought the woman. They brought her alone. There are no witnesses mentioned. It's a spectacle. This has to be the most embarrassing moment of this woman's life. She is brought, she is paraded before a group of men and religious leaders and then taken down to a Bible study. The Bible study is disrupted and there she is, most likely shaking and scared and embarrassed. It's a trap. In fact, the scriptures tell us it's a trap. The, the Pharisees could care less about this woman or what she's done. They're after Jesus. She's a pawn. She's part of their show. So we read, and, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, in the law of Moses. You do believe in the law of Moses, right? And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say they were using this this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. Jesus, they're trying to put him in a catch-22. On the one hand, if he says this woman shouldn't be stoned, then they can say, see, you're not really a rabbi because you do not believe the law of Moses. On the other hand, if Jesus says she should be stoned, the Roman government could then arrest him for inciting violence or for the death penalty. So here's this woman in probably the most Humiliating and shameful moment of her life, and there is an angry mob, and the mob is carrying stones. They are ready for blood. They are ready to stone her. And as I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking these stones are not only the physical, they do not only want to uh, inflict physical pain, but they also want to inflict emotional pain. The stones, I think, represent all the things that she'd ever done, all the accusations that they wanted to hurl at her. Oh, we know who you are. We know what you've done. But then Jesus does something unusual. Jesus is always doing something unusual. He's always throwing us off our game. We're ready with stones and accusations and condemnation. And then Jesus tells us ridiculous stories and parables and wraps us up in riddles. And and once again, Jesus does something unusual. Jesus bent down... And he begins writing in the dust. Or begins writing on the ground with his finger. Now, there are all kinds of theories about what Jesus begins to write in the first moment. You can Google them later. We're not going to get into them. But the text continues. When they kept questioning him, so Jesus has begun writing something on the ground, and they continue to question him. And so when they continue questioning him, he, said, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who was without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then, remember he'd been writing in the dust, he stands up, he says, anyone without sin, throw the first stone. And then he bends over again and once again begins writing. And when he bends over again, at this, those who heard begin to go away. What I believe is what happens is Jesus begins writing their own sin in the dust. He knows what they've done. It's getting uncomfortable. At this... At seeing their own sin written in the dust, or at least that's what I believe is going on. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older one first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked the woman, Woman, where are they? Where'd they all go? Has no one condemned you? And she replies, No one, sir. And he said, then neither do I condemn you. And Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Most of us, most of us, if we've grown up around church, we believe that God relates to us from a place of condemnation and anger and judgment. We've even, our theology somehow look like that, like God wants to condemn us, but if we just say the right thing, then God won't condemn us. We think that God comes to us from a place of condemnation. But what I want to do this morning is I want to shift and help you to understand that Jesus comes to us from a place of love. Love is the starting point. First and foremost... As hard as this is to understand and as hard as this is to get our minds around, there is nothing more you could do to help God love you. No matter how much you give or how much you serve or how many, many times you read the Bible or how many people you heal, whatever it is, right? Whatever that thing is, you're like, that person has the love of Jesus. There's nothing you can do to increase the love. And which is kind of actually frustrating to, at some point, because that means that the person you like least, Jesus loves as much as you do. Or I mean, as much as, no, let me get tell you that again. That was the gospel of Kevin Lum. The person you like least, Jesus loves as much as he loves you. We like to have the one up on someone else. In fact, there has been some research done into religious cults. Religious cults, particularly ones that have a high barrier of entry around finances, they tend to do really well among wealthy individuals. Why? Because you want to believe you got something special, something you can do a little more and a little better to get yourself up to the next level. Jesus' love extends at the same level for everyone but we're hardwired to feel like we're condemned, like we are separated. In the story of this woman, the stones don't just represent their attempt to kill her and illustrate all the, but instead they illustrate all the reasons she did not have, they illustrate all the reasons she didn't deserve love or compassion or mercy. And by the end of the story, this this is so powerful, But the end of the story, the stones were completely powerless. They had no power over her. All the accusations, all the things that she had done wrong, all the reasons that she did not deserve mercy or grace or compassion, they were powerless over her. And here's what's interesting. I never noticed this until another pastor pointed this out, is that John chapter 8 begins with the crowds wanting to stone the woman, and John chapter 8 begin ends with the stone or the crowds wanting to stone Jesus. It's a prophetic image of the gospel that Jesus takes our shame and our guilt upon himself. And the gospel story tells us that it dies on the cross. All the shame and the condemnation and the things that you have done wrong, the guilt that you have carried around with you for your entire life, the gospel tells us it dies on the cross with Jesus. And in the resurrection, there is now new life, which is available to us here and now today. At your lowest point, at your lowest moment, the enemy will always call you by your guilt and by your shame. But Jesus will call you by a new name, beloved. Jesus calls you a beloved child. He whispers into your ear at the lowest moment that you are loved. The problem is so many of us have bought into the lie that we are defined by what we do by what we accomplish. And Jesus calls us into a new identity. He said, in my kingdom, you are not defined by what you do. You are defined by who you are. You are adored. You are treasured. You are my beloved. Love calls us by a new name. You are God's beloved. Jesus says, I choose you. This is the good and the beautiful news of the gospel. Henry Nouwen, um, the great mystic, whose life work was devoted to the idea of what does it mean to be a beloved child of God. It is something he felt he was chasing all of his life to come to terms in his heart with what he knew in his head. Nouwen says it this way, from the moment we claim the truth of being the beloved, we're faced with the call to become who we are. Who are we? We're beloved people on a journey of reflecting that love back to the world. How will we know we are children of God? How will we know we're the beloved? By the way that we love one another, right? This is what the gospel tells us over and over. How will they know that you're my followers? By the way you love one another. Genesis says we are made in the image of God. What is the image of God that we see in the face of Jesus? It's sacrificial love. Genesis says that that image has been distorted. Jesus says we are being made new. That image is being restored. There is a newness. We now can walk in Christ's new life. As we walk with Jesus by the power of the Spirit, that image of love is being restored. But we have this tension that pushes up against us every time we hear a sermon like this. All the insecurities and all the reasons that you are not loved or you don't deserve love or that you deserve condemnation or your guilt or whatever it is that you're experiencing when you hear something like this, it all pushes up against us. And the the truth of the gospel, the message of the gospel, it feels a bit like fantasy. It feels a bit like a dream. That's beautiful. But come on. Because the reason it feels like a dream, because you are going to walk out of this space and you are going to go into your job tomorrow or you're going to go home to a relationship or whatever it might be, and that feels like the real world. What your boss says to you, what your spouse says to you, what your friends say to you, that feels real. This moment begins to feel like a dream. Because in these moments, right, the music has been great and we sing about God's love and the pastor cast his voice in just the right way and you begin to think, oh, maybe maybe this is true but then you go back to real life and it all seems like it was a fantasy. So what do we do? Because we are still hungry for love. We are still hungry to be accepted. It's the, it is the deepest human desire. All of us want to be to be fully known and fully loved. And it's our greatest fear is that if people really know us, they won't love us. So what do we do in the space between? Well, we start pursuing other ways to feel love. We take matters into our own hands, just like Eve does in the garden. Because God seems maybe untrustworthy. Maybe this isn't true. There's a gotcha on the other end. And so as the old country song says, we look for love in all the wrong places. We build identities that work for us. We build behavioral patterns that work for us. Some of you, many of you, because this is DC, are on a a performance treadmill. You're desperate to stand out. You've tried to please your entire life, whether it was your parents or your teachers or your boss. You make good grades, you get a good job, you have incredible lives on social media. I mean, your lives are beautiful. I mean, I've seen them everyone wants to be like you and it feels good you're holding down a challenging career you're volunteering at church and you're killing yourselves trying to hide your flaws everything's saving face never let anyone get too close don't ever show weakness I don't need your help I got this this is, why, um, this is why we hammer community groups at the table over and over and over. In fact, we have community groups that just launched last week, and we'd love for you to be a part of them. And the reason is, is because you need to be in a space where people know you and are allowed to ask the difficult questions. You need to be in a space where you can begin to pull the mask off. Because what we believe is that when we perform really well, When we perform really well, when we are the overachiever, God will look at us, or our friends will look at us, or our family will look at us, or our boss will look at us and say, you're awesome. You're incredible. You rocked it. I mean, I'll do the same thing, right? You do something amazing at church, and I'll shoot you a text or an email, and it's like, wow, you really knocked it out of the park. You're amazing. And all it does is just feeds the black hole. If I perform, people will love me. If I'm the good one, I'm the capable one, I'm the spiritual one. And you built, we built our personalities, our lives, our identities around this. We're always working, always performing. But the truth is, it's never satisfying. There's always an emptiness because we know if we stumble, it all goes away. I I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people in this city who told me something like this, I feel like a fraud at work. They're climbing the ladder, they're getting promotion after promotion, but someday they're going to discover I'm really not as great as they think that I am. And the subtext under that is, when they realize what a fraud I am, they won't love me, they won't accept me, I won't be special anymore. For others of us, it's pleasure, whatever whatever dulls the sense of emptiness, substance, sex, relationships, late night texting with men or women that we don't want, but we want them to want us. It's a circus, but you're the ringmaster, you're in control. Everyone's doing what you want, what you need them to, that substance, whatever it is, is doing what you need it to to make you feel the way that you want to feel. Some of you are using and abusing other people in your own body because you are so desperately longing to feel loved and accepted. And when that late-night text comes in, your first thought is, oh great, I am wanted, at the same time, you don't really care for or want that person. You just want to be wanted. It feeds something inside of you. But of course, there's a, there's a cycle. It's of pain and disappointment, trying to get love, feeling dissatisfied, being suspicious of the love you do get, right? because partially you're suspicious because you know you played the game too. You've acted like you wanted someone, but in reality, all you wanted was for them to want you. Are they the same way? And for some of us, it begins to build this world of self-hatred, self-loathing, all those stones that the woman was facing, that the weight of the stones that the woman in the story of Jesus were under, we feel we are under that same weight. And we can take this like, out of the religious world, right? take this from spirituality and all this, so many people in this city feel the weight of the stones that they feel are condemning them. The lies that whisper to them late at night when they're all alone that says, you're really not that great. People only like you because of what you do. They just keep pounding us over and over. Sometimes we, we help them out. We pound their cells Because deep down, we never believe that we could really be loved for just being us. It's always for what we do. And into that, Jesus steps, as he does into the story of the woman who had been accused He steps into it and says, I want you, I need you, I love you. Today I feel that God wants to say to some of us in this room that I, I am here for you. And all your efforts to be a dancing monkey in a circus are not going to get you any more love or approval. All the hoops you've tried jumping through, all the spiritual measures you've tried, all the performance things you've tried, everything you've tried throughout your life to be loved, God is saying, you don't need to do any of that. You are loved. God says, I delight in you. And, and this, sometimes we think this is like the Jesus-y stuff, but if we read the whole Bible, right, this isn't the same God. There's a, it's a kind of a switch. God has multiple personalities. Maybe he's a bit bipolar. But then we look at Jeremiah in the Hebrew Scriptures, Jeremiah 20, 21, that says, I've drawn you with everlasting love and unfailing kindness. There's this word that we see over and over throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. It's hesed, this everlasting love, this everlasting kindness. Micah 7 says, he delights In mercy and unfailing love, Zephaniah 3, the Lord will take great delight in you. The story of the gospel, the story of the scriptures, is that Jesus calls you his beloved. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But there's this quote, and I'm not going to quote it because it's a little... Complicated, but now, and there's this quote where now with now, and where he basically says, It's nice to come to church and have this rah rah moment where we talk about being the beloved, but it's a great sounding idea, but it doesn't change anything unless we pull it into the ordinary parts of our life. When we wake up in the morning, when we're checking our emails, and when we're on social media, and when we're at work, and when we're raising our families, these ordinary mundane moments of our lives, the beloved, this sense of being beloved has to enter into those moments and begin to redefine us, where we begin to see ourselves by this new identity, this identity of that we are the beloved, not that we are loved for what we do. And I wish, I wish I could tell you that we were going to like do some magic thing and you were all going to go out with being, with a sense of being beloved, but that's not how it works or not most of the time. But it's something that you have to continue to, to, to live into, to remind yourself of. It's why we continue to find ways. This is why spiritual practices are important. Spiritual practices don't convince God to love you more, they create an intimacy where God is able to remind you that you are the beloved. That's why it's important to come and to sing songs to God. It reminds us, it connects us of who we are. And the good news that God wants to exchange our spiritual hunger for the truth of being the beloved. But the bad news is, there are no bullet points. We love to-do lists in this city. I wish I could give you a checklist, five ways to feel more beloved, and you can put it on your mirror. Done, what's the next challenge? But it's a life of intimacy that we nurture, and it begins in moments like this. It begins in moments like this, and you continue to nurture it through scripture and prayer and through community. And the truth is, and you know this, that many of you have been seeking love and acceptance in all the wrong places, whether it be your job or your resume or your bank account or pleasure. And some of you feel intense shame. You feel shame and condemnation. And the beautiful thing about the woman that's brought before Jesus is that in her most shameful and humiliating moment, when they have caught her in the act, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. All that Jesus has for this moment, her lowest, most humiliating, most shameful moment where she has messed up and everyone knows it, all Jesus has is he offers her love. Neither do I condemn you. This morning I feel that some of us are I feel that some of us have come in this space with, with a heavy sense of guilt and shame. It's for things you've done, as the, as the words we say every Sunday before we come to this community, it's for the things we've left undone. We, we have all these thoughts that are running through our head. Oh, I should have been nicer to this person, or I should have done this, or I really messed up that. there's just this cloud of shame and guilt that follows you around wherever. There is a cloud of condemnation, often that you heap on yourselves. That's one group. There's another group of people here this morning who you, your entire life, have felt unloved and unwanted. You've been on a performance treadmill. You've been trying to do things to get people to like and accept you for as long as you can possibly remember, and you can't even begin to imagine a life where that's not the game you play. And there's not a magic prayer that makes all this go away and that removes all that shame and guilt, because I guarantee you, no matter what happens, that for many of you, you will go back out and tonight, as you're laying in your bed, you will begin to hear those voices creep back in. For those of you, you'll go out and you think, oh, that was great. I, I love that Jesus is all about me and I don't have to do anything to make him love me more. But then you fall back into the performance trap. If I only have more money, then people will like me. If I only climb the ladder. But here's what I want to, here's what I want to do this morning. One of my, one of my mentors... Um, talked about the idea, and I mentioned this before, is that, that we, are, we are determined individuals. Right? Scientists are beginning to figure out that like 97% of the choices we make on a, each day are determined. Right? We literally are just going through the motions on so many days. It's freaky when you start thinking about how determined we actually are. But my mentor said this, he said, our lives are determined. He said, but there are moments, there are slivers of grace that break into our predetermined lives, where we have a moment to embrace something new, a new truth about us, and change the course and the direction of our lives. And I think for some of you... Accepting that you are the beloved child of God begins today, here and now. You're going to have to continue to remind yourself of this day after day, waking up every day and reminding yourself as you lay there before you rise, I am the beloved of God. There is nothing more I could do to ever make God love me more. I am beloved. And so here's how I want us to respond. I want us to, the band's going to come and they're going to play a song and then we're going to come to this table and this table is, is a constant reminder. The reason that we come every week to this table is simply to remind us that we are the beloved of God. This, this is what love looks like. If we are wondering what love looks like, it looks like someone laying down their lives, someone breaking themselves, someone sacrificing themselves as a gift. We are eating and drinking the love and the grace of God into our lives. But before we do that, what I want us to do is I just want to say a prayer for us, and it's going to be a little weird. Um, so if you stand, here's what I want us to do. There's something in the physicality of our bodies. When we move our bodies, this is why yoga is so important for relaxation. Right? You could sit in a corner and say, be relaxed, but there's something about when you move your body, it does something to you. There's a physicality. We were, we were, we're physical beings. God created us as humans with bodies, not disembodied souls. And so here's what I want us to do, and I'm gonna say a prayer for us. And as I say the first part of the prayer, I just want you to turn your hands upside down and just let go of all the guilt and the condemnation and the shame that you've been carrying around. Let go of all the people who have told you that you are not good enough, or whether it's said or unsaid, right? All the feelings that you've had that if I just am not quite good enough, if I just try harder, then maybe people will love me more. I just want you just to, as I pray, just to let go. And then I'm going to to switch gears and I'll tell us when we flip. I want you just to flip your hands up like this and receive the truth that you are the beloved child of God. So if you just begin by turning your hands this way. God, we come this morning. I, along with every person in this room, carrying around shame and guilt and condemnation, feelings of not being good enough. I pray that your spirit would rest on this place and that we would release these things, that in your name we would release the shame and the guilt and the condemnations and the feelings of being unloved or unworthy, that we aren't good enough. I pray that your spirit would come on us and just help us to release the grip on these things that so many of us have held so tight for so long. We release those thoughts. We release those words that people have spoken to us, that maybe a parent or a spouse has spoken to us. We release those. And now we turn our hands upright and we say, Father, we accept that we are your beloved child and that there is nothing more we could ever do to gain your love. And we just ask that your grace and that your love would fill us in this place that we would be overwhelmed with the sense of our belovedness that we are a beloved child that we are made in your image that we are chosen we are wanted we are adored we are your treasure father i pray you just con- over- overwhelmingly convince us of the truth of our belovedness amen